Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. All right. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Diana. Hey, Justin. Hey, Diana. Hi, Hasmi. This is our first time appearing, all three of us, together in Albuquerque on the internet since, right? Yeah, well, ever, actually. Yeah. 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 So we're in our YouTube studio, which has been constructed in my basement in Mexico, (laughs) and we're trying out a bunch of new equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the backstory to all this? How did this happen? (laughs) You've you've moved in with me, but why? That's a great question. I moved in about six weeks ago. I'm on sabbatical. I'm writing a book. I'm doing other kinds of projects. And then also we invited Justin and Aria to come and live with us because Justin's doing this whole, you know, other life outside of academia stuff. And he's just been incredibly helpful and setting all this up, getting it all up and running and just being a really, you know, both of them, a good force in our lives in terms of so for Aww. their well, productivity, for, so, so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> that is all true. But for folks who have no idea who we are, yes, or what our relationships are, mm. um, I'm Jeffrey Miller. I'm an evolutionary psychology professor, and you're Diana Fleischman, also an evolutionary psychology professor, and my fiance. And we're going to get married. And in we're going to get November. married in November. <laughs> no, you go ahead. The echo is part of the engagement. Luckily, it'll stop mm-hmm. once we get mm-hmm. married. Show your ring. Oh, this this is my grandpa's ring. This is this is Jeffrey's ring. <laughs> and you've known Justin and Aria for a few years. Yeah, right? from when you lived in England. When was it, when did we start hanging out? Twenty sixteen. About two years ago. Twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. About the March time, and I know that because some memorable events happened in my life at oh, the same yeah. time I met you. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So Justin just said hi on Twitter. We followed each other on Twitter. He said hey. And then we just started hanging out, and then I met Aria, and then we were just friends for a long time. You did my podcast way back. That's right. I did. I did other. That was like now. the first time we hung out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the second time we ever hung out, you invited me over to do a podcast. Yeah, because you were in the neighborhood, uh, and there are not that many kind of interesting, provocative people on the internet in England. So, let alone in the region that we were in. Yeah. So when I saw you, it was a kind of no brainer. I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta meet this woman, and I was like, you should come do my podcast or whatever. You know, yeah. hop on the train and come hang out. And we've been friends ever since. I guess. And I was, I was donating eggs at that time. So okay. I was actually up in Southampton where you lived like three times a week for three weeks. So it was, I was seeing you like whenever I came to visit. Yeah. We'd have coffee and for stuff. My, for my ultrasound, I was coming to say hi. Yes. And I guess I don't need to introduce myself because this is probably going to appear on my channel. And then of course we can also do this for your channels. Uh, but uh, so I won't give my, I won't give a long spiel about myself. However, what I will say is, for all of you who have been asking about the polycule, this is the polycule. And uh, I, I just want to reiterate that my wife and I are monogamous. We respect Jeffrey and Diana's polyamorous lifestyle, but I am not a part of the polycule. Uh, my wife is not a part of the polycule. 
And to the degree there's a polycule, this is it. It's it's this. Um, it's an intellectual polycule. There you go. Right? I will accept Not that. Not a physical yes. polycule. Yes. We're polymaths who like to engage intellectually with one another. Yeah. That is as far as it goes. And that's far <clears throat> enough. <laughs> so once you had decided, Diana, to come over here and move in with me, at yeah. least for a while, um, and then Justin was making a kind of career transition, and I think it was maybe in March this year that we actually – converged in London and I hadn't talked that much with your wife Aria before that, but we all hung out for a day and we had a kind of grand vision, right? That, that you guys were going to uh, move back to America and visit with family for a while mm-hmm. on the East coast. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, Hey, why don't we try a little experiment where you guys come and, and live with me in my, my upstairs suite in my house and let's do this. Let's see if we can make, a YouTube studio and do social media outreach and create digital content. And uh, that's what we've been doing all summer. Yeah. And so we've been, Ari and I have been here for about two months now total, but one month of that Diana was not here yet. So in that first month that we were here, Ari and I and Jeffrey were kind of hanging out and we were just kind of getting warmed up on all of this stuff. So people might remember on my channel a few weeks ago, uh, Jeffrey and I did a few collaborative videos where we just kind of fired up the mic in the video and, and, and did a kind of video podcast. But if you remember, we were, we were huddled around this, the uh, blue Yeti USB mic, you know, sharing one mic, it kind of sounded very uh, echoey and we're kind of like fighting for the space on the mic. And uh, the video wasn't very good, not very sophisticated, but if you're watching this now and you also watch that back in the day, you will now notice that we have up to our production quality quite a bit. We now have, three separate mics. Okay. So it should sound much better, especially when this goes to the podcast, to the other life podcast, it should be much easier on the ears. I'm very happy to report. We've significantly upgraded on that front. And even just the video that you're watching now, the way we have this split screen, I think it's pretty dope. Uh, let us know what you think, if it looks good, or, um, I, I hope you're all going to find it's a notable and appreciable increase in production quality and just, uh, you know, the easiness with which one is able to listen to it and watch what we're doing here. So that's a bit of a progress report. What else we got? Just from a psychological perspective, I knew that I was going to come and live with Jeffrey and Jeffrey is much more introverted than I am. And both from an evolutionary perspective and also just because I had been living in England for a while in shared housing, I know that I just like having people around to talk to and hang out with. And that if you're just with one other person, it can be difficult Mm -hmm. sometimes I, I I have this feeling about couples living in isolation that it's really profoundly unnatural. I'm not the first evolutionary psychologist person to say this, that it's, it's very unusual from an you know evolutionary perspective for a couple to just kind of live alone, or even, even as a nuclear family alone with their kids. And so I've always really liked group living because of the color it brings to your life, the companionship, the socializing. And then also, you know, for example, I do yoga and meditation with your wife every morning. You guys would never want to get up at 7am to do yoga and meditate with me. Yesterday we did a high impact, whatever kettlebell workout. And I would have, I just got up from a nap. I would have never done it if Aria hadn't been like, come on, let's work out. So just really, really good synergy all around. Yeah. So one of the rationales for the group living thing was also kind of to create a, a Skinner box or an operant house where everyone is sort of more accountable to other people than you typically are, right? If you're in a couple and you're isolated, each person tries to be nice to the other, right? And if someone has a failure at work and 
like doesn't get done what they said they were going to do, then typically the other person will feel like they have to go, oh, that's okay, honey. I still love you, even though you failed to write anything at all today on your book proposal. Whereas one of the rationales here is that we're trying to hold each other more accountable. We're trying to do group scheduling on what's it called? Slack yeah, and Google Calendar and share all of that and make plans kind of individually and collectively, but, but do it in a way that, you know, anybody living in a kind of prehistoric clan would also be accountable to everybody else. Like if you say, I'm going to go hunting, who else wants to go hunting tomorrow? And then somebody flakes out that has costs and, and that's bad. So this is all a little bit of a, an experiment in kind of behaviorist psychology and operant conditioning and feedback and accountability. Yeah, that's right. I think mostly for me. So I will say this is my schedule for today and I'm going to take this or that break. Recently we've started doing something where we have a kitchen table co-working where Aria and Justin and I actually mostly we sit around the table and then it's more of a kind of a joke where Justin goes and peeks at my laptop to make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But I would be so embarrassed if he called me out that it actually does really keep me on task for two hours as to what I'm supposed to be doing. And it actually really helps jumpstart me in terms of flow. So sometimes it can be really hard to get into flow. I don't get into flow every day. I really envy Justin because I think Justin does get into flow every day and uh, sometimes finds it really easy to write. So that's, that's all I think just really helpful. Even if you're sitting next to somebody who's in flow, it's contagious, you know? Yeah, definitely. Also, we did a little experiment where I had Diana give me her API key to rescue time. Rescue time is an app that basically passive, it passively tracks what you're doing on your computer. It's a web app. So I had her give me her API key. And then I wrote some scripts that basically monitor what she's doing on her computer. And if she doesn't meet her, if she doesn't meet her goals, she gets an automated message on Slack kind of shaming her lightly. And if she does meet her goals, you know, she gets an automatic message saying, Hey, good job, Diane. I'm really proud of you. Yeah, That's kind of a cool little thing we're experimenting with. And Justin kind of checks on me kind of randomly. And generally you just don't say anything if I haven't been getting done what I need done. But you, the other day you came by and you're like, you've done two hours of writing in the last three hours. Good job. Or whatever. Well, you've yeah. told me that you respond better to positive feedback and not so much negative feedback. So I feel really bad when I, when I don't get done what I need done, but uh, just to kind of go back to flow, cause not everybody knows about flow. Sure. There's this guy named uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, which is a Hungarian name. So it's got a lot of random letters in it. And he was the one who came up with the concept of flow and flow is the state that you get into. If you're doing something that's usually kind of on the edge of your abilities, something where you don't notice the time going by and you're pleasurably immersed. Mm -hmm. And video games are really good at creating these kinds of flow states because they engineer each level to your ability. So just kind of beyond your ability. So you feel like it's, it's an actionable item. Whereas regular work can sometimes be hard to get into flow, especially if you're writing something where you have self-doubt, you're not sure that you're going to be able to write it. So if you're writing something and you're in a state of flow, you have this feeling that you can do it. You have this feeling of confidence, but also this feeling of challenge and, and pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I was just going through my Kindle highlights. I downloaded them all to my computer and I was going through the highlights from that book. And that book is pretty amazing in that it's actually more philosophical than people realize. Obviously, he was a psychologist and it's primarily about a kind of psychological concept. But there's all these chapters also about kind of larger philosophical claims that he kind of draws around this idea of flow. Like he talks about how in some sense, I forget what he says exactly, but in some sense, the the experience of flow is essentially what 
makes life good at all. You know, you really make some pretty grand claims about how it's like one of the key things that basically you want to get into as much as possible simply to have a good life. Um, and he talks about this like autotelic personality is the concept that he uses. And there's something unique about this experience of flow in which you're it's, it has to be intrinsically rewarding. It's like you, you, you divorce from kind of instrumental external fears and pressures and considerations. Like you're not necessarily trying to achieve some external goal. You actually forget about all of that and you get immersed in the intrinsically rewarding or what he calls autotelic, meaning the activity is its own goal. Autotelios. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And I just thought, I just thought that was really cool. And it's actually very philosophical and even in a weird way, political, because as a political theorist, I'm very interested in all these discourses around basically different types of rationality. So I'm sure you're familiar with people like Max Weber, although our audience might not be, there's this kind of distinction between instrumental rationality and then what Weber I think calls um, ethical substantive rationality. And I've been kind of talking about this and writing about this somewhat over, over the past year about how um, instrumental rationality is essentially how we get captured by kind of pressures, whether it be like consumer marketing, which Jeffrey, which Jeffrey knows a lot about, um, or various forms of basically social pressure that can capture us and make us obsessed with things that we don't even fully understand. That's essentially instrumental rationality is usually the pathway through which we get uh, kind of lost down those paths, which are often very depressing and usually to the interests of other people that we don't fully understand. And so, yeah, this idea of flow is actually quite um, philosophical and political because it's actually kind of reminding you about what really matters in life and how to think really, really clearly and have a ha- have a healthy, happy, satisfying kind of attitude all at the same time. Yeah, I've noticed like when I live alone, what you tend to do is you kind of alternate between doing work, which requires a huge amount of willpower, conscientiousness, dedication, and is kind of aversive. And the way you get through it is you say, oh, if I do this, I will do this other thing in the evening or weekend that I find, you know, rewarding. That's kind of consumerist leisure. Right. Like I get to watch this movie or play around on Twitter or whatever. And that's your motivation. Whereas I think in a well-functioning group home where you're sort of naturally mutually accountable, um, and particularly if you're doing, let's say, intellectual work that's more like, let's just talk about the psychology of Antifa or whatever, right? and you're doing kind of mutual interview, that's just so much easier to do um, psychologically than just sitting down and writing something or doing a piece to camera. Right. So I think this kind of clannish group living is a way to kind of maximize that flow. Right. But without relying on getting caught up in these kind of consumerist dream worlds. Definitely. Well put. Yeah. I had somebody email me, actually, Athena Actipus, who's at um, Arizona State University, about something that I had forgotten about, which is the kind of dark side of flow. It's called Mm -hmm. a ludic loop. And it's the kind of thing that you get into when you're gambling. It's also the kind Mm. of thing that you get into when you're on endless scroll, like on Instagram or Tumblr or Twitter. And so you're doing something that is actually not pleasurably immersive. Mm. You feel bad and ashamed and like you're not doing anything really good, but you can't kind of stop. You get into this compulsive constancy. And she was saying, you know, because I'm writing this book, she says, do you think that this happens in relationships, you know, when two people are really isolated? And I do think that the isolation can also cause these kinds of problems in relationships where there's conflict and making up and then conflict. And then there's just no outside inside. I mean, I'm not saying that that's, that that's, has to do with this group home, but I'm saying that that is something that happens when people are isolated from other people. Do you think that 
the success of our group experiment in this house so far has something to do with the fact that we're not poly altogether. Like would that, do you think? think? Yeah. I would never, I would never want to live in like a group. I mean, so there's communes that have experimented with that. It would add a whole, I mean, it's already complicated enough. Like who buys the coffee this week (laughs) without like who spends the night with who this week. I think that that would be incredibly complicated. I think that some kind of visits from people are fine. Sure. But yeah, I don't think that a polycule, there's definitely been, Jeffrey's got a friend who's written about experiments with communal living. And a lot of these communes had a certain polyamorous or free love kind Mm. of ethos. In some of them, it was actually forbidden even for couples to be together all the time, for them to spend more than one night together. And I think that that's been one way that they've tried to, some, some communal living situations actually have rules or social norms against the normal kinds of ways that people would affiliate. For example, in kibbutzim in Israel, some of them, you weren't supposed to call your parents, mom and dad. You're supposed to call them by their first names because all the adults were supposed to have a similar relationship with you as your own parents. And then unsurprisingly, all these kids who were raised together like brothers and sisters were not interested in marrying each other when they grew up, even if they weren't brothers and sisters. Mm. Right. So I don't think that it would work uh, as a polycule. And I think also I said at the outset, we have to really be brutally honest with each other. We have to have these kind of house meetings. If you have any tiny thing that's annoying you, it can just grow over time. It's better for us to have a discomfort, you know, an uncomfortable, awkward situation about something when it's still a small problem than to let it grow into a big problem. So I'm actually more into over disclosing as into under disclosing anything and everything that you might want rule wise. And I'm too into rules. You guys are way more laissez faire than me. I actually underestimated your conscientiousness because fewer rules have been fine. But as of what I've heard about other communal living situations is that things have fallen into disorder because of social loafing and because of the tragedy of the commons. Right. I, th- I, th- I think we all have fairly similar levels of sort of cleanliness and, um, house aesthetic preferences. And so there's not a whole lot of conflict on, on those levels, but we do a weekly house meeting. And then we also do a weekly or, or even more often content meeting. That's about the work that we're going to do. And the house meeting is just the problems of living that need resolving. And typically, you know, there aren't any week to week. There were a few at first that we needed to sort out. They're like, quite minor, right? Do, I mean, do, yeah. yeah, they were pretty minor. Um, <laughs> and then the content meeting is a little more, it's kind of more fun, but it's also a little more heavy because it's like, ah, shit, this is the work and this is the high stakes stuff we're actually trying to do. Right. Yeah. Maybe there's a way we can make it more lighthearted and exciting. Well, I mean, one thing I had said a couple of weeks ago, which we never really followed up with yet, but we still could is doing a little bit more positive review of successes and what's going on, what's going well with our different, because basically for those people who might just be listening for the first time, we're all kind of strong personalities and we have our own creative, independent, intellectual web presences. And we've all been cultivating them for quite some time before we decided to try living together. So it's natural that, you know, we're going to um, have very different attitudes and, and aesthetics and whatever personal brands, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think because of that, sometimes we kind of, we're very hands off with each other, but we could actually do more to share and discuss like what's going, like the the good things that happened in our lives or careers or whatever the case might be over the past week or two, we kind of don't spend that much time going over that stuff and, and I don't know, celebrating or whatever. Yeah. 
I mean, one thing we might even do at some point is maybe do a video of a content meeting and just show people how do we actually plan what we're up to and kind of negotiate it and set up contingencies, rewards, and punishments and so forth. Yeah, yeah we could try that. If people are interested, tell us if you are. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, I don't know. We did a really fun thing on Monday, though. We had, I think that we could have tied it more to, we've done such a good job lately that we're going to go for a hike together, but we got up super early. Yeah. And we went on a really lovely hike that Aria planned, actually. Up the Sandia Mountains. Yes. And it's just incredible, the landscape here is sort of pink rocks and green and red cactus. And then you get up and there's lush forest it was it was really nice i'm not a big hiker i don't think any of us are big hikers aria was really in her element and yeah. really happy and she's been talking all week about how happy it made her and how much she really liked it yeah by the way we'll try to drag aria on here sooner or later yeah oh and i forgot to tell you i have all the gear needed for a fourth seat at the table it's over there i just haven't set it up yet because we don't have a fourth person but what that means is we can start having people over the house to hang out with us and talk with us so yeah we can do that there's all kinds of characters here in albuquerque yeah. yeah. Did you know um, th- this guy, uh, Chris D'Elia, do you know who this is? He's like a comedian. He's kind of in the Joe Rogan circles. Not like that famous, I don't think, or whatever. But uh, I mean, pretty famous, whatever. I just happened to see on YouTube that he was like recently talking shit about Albuquerque. Did you <laughs> see this? I think I might have mentioned it to you. I forget. Um, yeah. He basically, because, you know, it's becoming kind of like a little mini L.A. It's like a suburb of L.A. People are starting to do movie stuff here, right? Because it's cheaper. Uh, like we have some friends, actually. And uh, so there are people who come from LA to stay here for a few days while they shoot movie sets or whatever. And I guess that's what he was doing. And he was on a podcast. This, uh, I think it's the H three H three podcast. I don't know if you even know what that is, but, uh, yeah, he's talking mad shit about Albuquerque about how there's like nothing to do. It sucks. And I was, well, I was listening to it. I'm like, dude, Albuquerque's pretty cool. I've only been here for a few months and I kind of like it so far. And I kind of wanted to be like, shoot him a message or something and be like, dude, c- come hang out with us. It's pretty cool here. <laughs> yeah. Well, based right it's very based it's unpretentious it's laid back um it's not sort of pretentious and intense and and busy the way new york or la are um it's chill it's relaxed but yeah you know we're like we're doing a faculty search right now looking for two new assistant professors and i thought okay if i really wanted to recruit somebody how would i pitch albuquerque versus like uc santa barbara versus university of michigan or whatever and it's like Cost of living, easy commutes, laid back culture, a little bit of a hipster vibe, some places, you know, beautiful nature, et cetera. And as I was saying in my psychology colloquium this morning, internet is just as fast here as anywhere else. So if you're doing social media outreach, this is just as good a place to be as, you know, Silicon Valley. Hell yeah, we got the uh, ethernet that Jeffrey had installed not yeah. too long ago gigabit per gigabit second. ethernet we can upload dope. shit at 60 megabits a second and download 900 so there i Take haven't that. lived in big cities that much i've lived in london for a while I, austin's not a big city i've just visited new york but i do think it's difficult to get stuff done there and it can be really exhausting in a great way i mean if certainly if i'm spending two weeks in new york i'm socializing almost constantly so that's probably why i find it so tiring so I do really like living full-time somewhere like here and then visiting other places that are right. busier to do kind of full-time socializing at different times, potentially. And if we were polyamorous in New York, we would get <laughs> sweet fuck all ever done, right? I mean, it would, like... I think we would, we would have, we would impose our own limits. I would be able to impose my own limits, certainly. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, said, I've said quite a few times also that I think social density 
breeds conformity for a lot of people. Maybe if you're a really, really independent, strong-willed type of person, you can you can still maintain a kind of independent project without social conformity. But for a lot of people who go to cities because they want to be part of the action, they want to be where other creative people are, and they often tell themselves it's going to inspire them and make them more creative. In a lot of those cases, what's actually really happening is it makes them more conformist and it makes it harder for them to actually think anything interesting and unique, let alone take risks in expressing themselves in idiosyncratic ways that maybe no one else understands because you're essentially, there's more social pressure. There's more social punishments for being misunderstood and there's more to be gained by just fitting in. So I actually think the, the, the move to the big city, uh, meme is, is actually really backwards. I think that's why it's important to surround yourself with people who are successful and motivated. And those kinds of people are not going to say, you know, let's get high and play video games all day. Right. If you're the most successful person in your friend group, then you are doing something wrong. Mm. Right. You should definitely know people and spend time with people who you aspire to be like in some way, shape or form. And so I do think that it depends on kind of what group you get into. And Justin, and I've had this ongoing discussion about this. I actually think people are not judgmental enough about who they keep company with, especially somewhere like a big city where you could literally be friends with you know, millionaires or, or you could be friends with the homeless people or you could be friends with meditators or you could be friends with yoga people. There's mm. all kinds of people that you could be friends with. And it's important, I think, to cultivate a friend group that inspires you to live your to your idealized potential. Right. For sure. I mean, I think I would add that I, I, the problem I'm articulating, I think does go a little bit deeper than the one you're articulating. It's not just a problem of falling into the wrong people who play video games. And then therefore you're going to be lazy. It's like, even if you're socially embedded with people who are smart, creative and productive people, if you're really surrounded by a social group, the opinions of whom you really care about, you tend to become kind of conservative in your creative capacities. I mean, I've spent, I grew up in New Jersey, right? So I spent, and and then I lived in Philly for 10 years. So even apart from the kind of hipster creative circles in Philly, which I know quite well, I spent a fair amount of time in kind of hipster Brooklyn types of circles. Like I know, I know firsthand what it's like in these types of places where all the creative people go to do significant things. And it's mostly people terrified of what the people around them are going to say about them. And that just doesn't breed truly interesting, unique, and momentous types of um, creative experiments. Personally, so I think everything you were saying uh, about the positive advice of what you're saying of just trying to find good people to surround yourself with, that holds true, no doubt. But even then, there can be this kind of failure mode of, of social conformity that's hard to escape. So I would only add, I think, to what you said, um, find uh, maybe smaller groups of people who you are going to feel comfortable being fucking weird around and, and you know, who aren't going to talk shit about you if they don't understand you in one particular instance, they're going to be patient and they're going to, they're going to watch you over time and, and let you develop and and not try to pin you down. I mean, like you guys are very good about that because you got, we're a very different, uh, and I'm, I'm very kind of weird in certain ways and idiosyncratic in certain ways. Um, and you never, you know, like put me down. <laughs> we're all, yeah, we're all weird in totally different ways, I think. And some, some of the same ways, but I think one way that we are somewhat similar is just being contrarian and I think that yeah. if you are a contrarian, you don't have to worry that much about conforming to people. And especially if you're in a group of contrarians, in fact, you're going to find people getting more more edgelordy potentially, right. which I think is cool. I mean, as long as you don't take those 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 banterous debates that you're having at the kitchen table and think, okay, now I really do believe that whatever. Um, 
everybody should be sterilized to whatever edgelord belief that you might believe in, right? Well, I think another thing I noticed that happens, like in New York, for example, I went to undergrad in New York and I spent a year there six years ago at teaching at NYU Stern Business School in the heart of Greenwich Village. And it's amazing that you can network so fast with so many smart, mm-hmm. interesting, successful people. But the problem with that is you get the sense that like the social life of the mind is vastly more important than everything else. Mm. In New Mexico, it's clear you're surrounded by the desert and everything human is transient. And that at some level, this is all bullshit and a thousand years it'll be gone. Like we'll either be colonizing space or extinct. So it's really hard to take, you know, the social conformity pressures of um, intellectual life that seriously in a place like this, that's dominated by the landscape and history and mostly you're surrounded by people who aren't that intellectual, right? Mm. It's, it's kind of a working class place. It's a military place. It's got Sandia labs. It's got, you know, healthcare system. It's got a university, but it's not dominated by like the publishing industry, media, academia, the way that Manhattan is. And I think there's this insular quality to like New York intellectual life mm-hmm. that is almost entirely invisible to New Yorkers. But that, you know, when you live here and then you go to visit there, it becomes like painfully apparent. Yeah, there's something I'd add to that also. Something I've noticed living here for two months now that has been really cool is that especially if what you really want to do is undertake a, a really creative, independent personal vision uh, having to do with, especially on the internet. If that's the type of project that you're trying to pursue in any type of significant way, I think it really behooves you to move somewhere that's a city. So there are people around, but a smaller kind of less famous city where there's not that much going on. Because what I've noticed is how should I put this? So we all have um, kind of built in needs to do some minimum amount of kind of impressing people on a, on a daily basis. Right. Um, everyone wants to be able to go out into society on some kind of regular schedule and, you know, uh, feel like people like you and, and, and get that kind of affirmation and gratification for whether it be, you know, your interesting thoughts or your articulate, you know, banter over the, the beer table or whatever the case might be. We all have some basic needs for getting recognition and, and kind of daily affirmation and impressing people. But when there's not that much to do out and about, like when, you know, there's just not that many cool places to go. There's some nice pubs and there's like some, some cool hipster kind of things to hang around, but there's not really that many places for me to go physically where I can, where I care about impressing anyone. Like I don't even know many people who I would care to impress or, or be cool around. And when you lack those immediate local physical opportunities to get your daily bit of social um, affirmation, when you lack that, it is really good for doing an internet project because you just turn all the more to the internet as you, as the location with which you, or the location within which you seek your social gratification, you know? So it's like, it actually, I think is making me more productive on the internet because there's nowhere for me to go physically where people think I'm cool. So I'm like, I just have to make an extra video today so I can feel like, you know, uh, so I can get some evidence that someone out there thinks I'm cool, you know? And that's very vain. It sounds very vain, but in some sense, like we all need this. So I think, I think moving to a small minor city, especially where it's cheap is a really good move. If you want to pursue like a long-term creative project on the internet, at least so far, it seems like that. It's almost like reaching the right balance between your different subcultures that you care about. If you're in a big city and you're surrounded by successful people, but they're kind of caught up in some kind of ideological group think mm-hmm. you tend to take that really seriously. 
And if you're doing your own little project with your own subculture, whatever it is, it's kind of easy for that to get swamped by your immediate social pressures. Whereas if you're like us and like the things you really care about are effective altruism and evolutionary psychology and transhumanism and animal welfare and polyamory, there's not a whole lot of pressure locally that swamps that. You right. can just kind of focus on the internet subcultures that are allied with your, your values and just create content for them and not really care about the fact that everybody else around you is, you know, politically dissimilar to you and it matters a lot to them. And mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well put. So what do you think? Anything else? It's two seventeen. You guys might need some time to, you have an engagement coming up. Uh, yeah. but I just, I was just going to say that I think that it's, it would be really great if people tried, you know, group living more often. Mm -hmm. I see all the time, you know, going to people's houses and just tons of extra space that they have extra bedrooms. And I just think that most people would be happier if they had other people living with them. Mm. And of course it depends on, you know, those people being conscientious. If you don't feel like you're being, I don't know, take advantage of in any way, shape or form, but it, it does seem like there's an epidemic of, of loneliness right. and I would just really encourage people. And there's, you know, some group like you were in Las Vegas and you were in some kind of tiny house and it was a, a community of RVs and tiny houses. And as long as there's some place for people to get together, I think communally. And I, I know that I don't necessarily know if I agree entirely with the kind of Andrew Yang, whatever idea about, about universal basic income, but imagining a bunch of people coming together and thinking, okay, what can we all buy with our monthly stipend uh, such that we can all live together happily. That's, that's one thing. And I, you know, I read Walden too. I, I do like these kinds of experiments and I just think it's, it's worth, it's worth uh, looking into. And especially I think people with children, they tend to be really, really, and I'm not a mother yet, so I don't really know, but uh, they tend to be really picky about how people interact with their kids, what people converse about with their kids. And certainly in our ancestral environment, kids would have just met up and talked to all kinds of different adults and I don't think it really does anybody any harm. So, yeah, I would just say, you know, we're just kind of on our fledgling journey with this this kind of communal thing. But I certainly think that, you know, we could, if we had a bigger house, I think up to eight people is really super mm. manageable. Mm. And there's all kinds of economies of scale. Right. You know, I would love to have somebody in here who wants to cook for us full time. That would be amazing. Yeah. If you're into that and you're looking for a place to stay, yeah. you can apply by sending me an email. Um, you will live in a glass room, though. <laughs> and I, I think I would also add that a lot of people have the misapprehension that you have to have complete um, concordance about all the lifestyle issues, but you really don't like you're vegan. Mm. Justin's pretty kind of paleo and you're often in ketosis and you eat a lot of meat and I'm kind of somewhere in between and, and you and Aria have different chronotype. You get up earlier, Justin and Larks, I tend to yeah. stay up later. I think the key thing is, you know, are you, rational people who can actually articulate what you want and what you don't want and who can catch potential sources of tension early and resolve them sort of once and for all and where you don't enjoy kind of recreational drama. Right. I think one of the great things that we came up with to begin with in our first meeting, which actually things started off a little rocky, but then rapidly got 
totally fine. But you basically said, if you haven't told me anything's wrong, I'm going to assume nothing's wrong. And I think that's one of the most liberating things you can tell somebody is that I'm going to tell you if I'm upset with you, if there's something wrong, I'm going to tell you about it. Even if I don't think it's legit, even if I'm like, okay, I'm overreacting, it's important to say something. I think that's a really important rule of thumb because otherwise you can always be wondering, are they kind of upset with me? Mm -hmm. But maybe like they just don't feel like saying it. And then, yeah, so if you just explicitly agree, like if you're not talking about it being a problem, then it's not a problem until you until you talk about it being a problem, right? Yeah. I, I don't – you're kind of an interesting character because you're sort of an introverted extrovert in so many ways. You like to be around people. Like you like to go and work in a bar or in a cafe and I don't. And in some sense, I would say that you like approval, but you don't really like approval. You just – you want to make sure that everybody's okay with you emotionally. I would say I care a lot about – the judgments of the people who I do allow into my life. I'm very good at having a very thick skin about everyone else's judgments. Um, but if I, if I'm letting you in, then yeah, if you think ill of me or you think I'm doing something bad or I'm making you upset, that matters a lot to me. Yeah. 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 And, and I think also if everyone has a pretty high degree of self-awareness about their own moodiness or irritability, like if I'm doing it, 48 hour fast and I get pretty grumpy after 30 hours, like I'll try to remember to tell you, right. Mm-hmm. So that you can tell, Oh, if I'm stomping around and I'm like cussing, that's not because of you. It's just because of this other thing. Or if I've had a shitty day with my department at work, right. I'll try to let you all know. And I think there's this sort of, I don't know. I grew up in Ohio. So there's a kind of Midwestern norm that says, you don't complain, you tough it out, you don't tell anybody else when you're upset. And in a group living situation, that's really bad Mm. because everybody automatically spins up like attributions about, oh, Diana seems upset. Why is she upset? I better go through my top eight hypotheses. And it saves so much mental effort if you can do this default that says, if I'm not telling you something you've done is distressing me just assume i'm totally cool with you even if i'm irritable right about other stuff right i mean i would say there's nothing wrong with having that stoic base which i kind of have also um the key thing is knowing in yourself when you're reaching a threshold that is actually going to make you resentful right so it's like if you guys are doing little things that annoy me and i genuinely can let it go then there's nothing wrong with in one second feeling like, oh, that thing she just said really annoyed me, but I, I know that I don't really care and I'll forget about this in two seconds. So I don't need to talk to you about it. That's stoical and that's sensible and that's maturity. And that's like a good thing for everyone to cultivate if you can do it. The problem is if you're too good at that and then you start accumulating these things that are actually exceeding your threshold of what you can tolerate. So then you're seething and you're, you're, it's festering, your resentments are festering. That can be where the problem is. So, um, cause I, we, you could imagine an alternative failure mode, right? Where like, you communicate too much about microscopic things and many collective living situations can, can spiral down the tubes in that type of way. Yeah. And yeah, we haven't done that either, at least so far. I think when I hear anybody say I'm holding space for somebody, I think that there can get to a point where your legitimate grievances or concerns end, and you're just trying to say something interesting. And so you just start to make things up. Like, I think that's a thing that can happen. Give me an example. I'm not, it's not clear. 
Oh, so like, let's say uh, somebody's like, I'm holding space for you. And then you just start talking and then you Wait, explain to people what that even means. Well, oh, so holding space is this thing that I've heard new agey and polyamorous people say, and it's just like really active listening. Uh-huh. Right. And it's, it's saying, I'm going to accept anything that you tell me for a certain amount of time. And I was like on a psychedelic retreat and we did that kind of thing. I don't have a problem with the idea itself, but it is difficult. I think as human animals to figure out where, because you were saying that these two different kind of different kinds of failure modes. There's mm-hmm. failure mode where you don't say what's bothering you enough, and there's failure mode where you're saying what bothers you too much. But even further out on that failure mode is people inventing things that are bothering them. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, like the recreational drama. Right. That, so yeah, yeah, not but not even that. Like I want attention and I want to be listened to. So I'm going to say something about that. And I, I think that there's also we also all have a real, um, what's it like a. a a spirit of self-improvement. So you mentioned that I was interrupting you a lot and I said, okay, I don't want to make it like super uncomfortable for you to tell me you are interrupting me right now. So you just say steamroll (laughs) and then I'll know that I should, that I should shut up because I'm having a bad impact on you by interrupting you. And I want to improve myself and interrupt you less. So I think that we all have this kind of spirit of of self-improvement too. So I will humbly suggest that we all say one thing that we've learned that's that people, the listener can take away with them in this group living experiment, uh, maybe as a, as a summary. Mm. I mean, we've said mm. it a lot, but we can say something again. Right. Yeah. I have a thing. So I lived in a lot of shared houses, co-living situations in grad school for five years in Palo Alto. One thing that's different here is that everyone's mostly working from home, like most of the time, even I'm here, although I have a full-time job at my university, and you guys are here most of the time. I think in a, in a shared house where people are mostly working outside, then they come home, and the most important thing that they could be dealing with at home is conflict with their housemates. So they often kind of invent conflict because mm. that's kind of the most arresting and interesting like social psychological drama you can have. But if you're working from home, particularly doing group projects like this and mutual interviews, you've always got more important shit to do than the co-housing drama, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. So you're always aware that, okay, if we're having conflict over like you're interrupting people too much, or I failed to wash up that everybody knows as common knowledge that, we all have more important things to work on. And so the temptation to kind of dive into the usual, you know, social primate bullshit about living together is, is kind of minimized. That's a good point. So the lesson there is kind of make sure you're exhausting your energy and capacities on meaningful work so that you don't have that excess leftover energy to burn on fights with your roommates. Have, also, have so, some collective goal that's higher and more important than just getting along. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because so, if you have that higher goal, you'll automatically get along better. We're sort of taking everything that everyone does here in good faith. Like, I don't think that anybody's trying to do less than their fair share systemically. Right. Whereas you don't know that about people that you, you know, or just happen to be living with. But it is a good point. Probably one of the reasons why it's been relatively successful the past Two months. I mean, actually, we should give ourselves more credit now that I think about it, because actually very few adults of our ages, of our strong personalities would be able to do this with such few problems and and with a lot of success so far and all the things we've set out to do, at least, you know, so I think like that's not to toot my own horn, 
but like a lot of adult people, especially if they're married, especially if they have extensive experience living alone, like Ari and I have, we've had the luxury of, of having complete privacy in our own houses for six years now, you know, a lot, people have a really hard time giving that up in favor of a kind of communal cooperative thing. And yeah, most of the, most adults just don't want to do that at the stages of life in which we are. And when they do try, it often doesn't really work that well, pretty rap- like things can fail quite rapidly. So I don't want to toot our own horns because we've only been doing this for two months, but I think also we deserved a little bit of like, um, we should be quite proud that, that we're pulling it off at least so far. When I've talked to people and I'll, I'll just say, this is my summary when I've talked to people about this kind of group living situation, they'd say like, Oh, I'd hate to find like a, an unwashed dish. Or when people talk about their privacy, these are people I don't know to be wandering around naked all the time. Like, I don't really know what people mean by privacy. Uh, you kind of have to, we had like conversations about that right off, you know, like what is our policy about nudity? What is our policy about visitors? What exactly would yeah. make you comfortable and uncomfortable? But I think that when you get down to it and people talk about wanting to live alone, there's a certain kind of usually materialism there. Like I don't mm-hmm. want other people looking, you know, using my stuff or dirtying my things or using up my wife or whatever mm. the case may be. And I think that they don't realize what the cost is, that they might be happier living with people if they put more, they put more importance on socializing mm. and uh, sort of economies of scale. Mm. Like Ari and I both get up early. How can we both benefit and do something together? Or we both went to a meditation, like half day retreat on Sunday. So what are things that we can benefit from, like mutual interests that we can benefit mm. from by, by living together? And I think that that's way more important to me than occasionally finding an unwashed dish. But I think people who've lived alone for a long time, they start investing their happiness in their stuff. Mm. And I think that's, that's, a good point, that's something yeah. that people might want to think back in terms of the like hedonic treadmill. Yeah, that's a very good point. So was that your, that's your my, final bit? Yeah. I think one lesson that I've learned so far that's worth sharing is that in my estimation of how things have progressed so far over the past two months here, I think ideological and intellectual diversity is a real strength for an amicable, stable living arrangement. Because, I mean, if you're listening to this for the first time, you might not know much about like what I think and all the stuff I've written and spoken about and all the stuff that Jeffrey and Diane have written and spoken about. And we agree on some things, probably the main one being a kind of radical free speech. Absolutism is probably the main thing that unites all of us, but in almost in many other dimensions of kind of intellectual or ideological um, issues, we're quite different. So like my wife and I are Christian and you guys are emphatically not if I, understand you both correctly. Although Jeffrey has a kind of interesting history around it a little bit. Is, am I, am I putting words in your mouth that I should I'm, I'm Christian sympathetic much more than I was five years ago. Okay. Fair but enough. But I'm still, you know, agnostic atheist, yes. but don't go to church, et cetera. Right. And you two are both pretty strictly utilitarian, whereas I'm much more deontological in my outlook and in many other issues I could cite in which we actually do see things quite differently. And we're strong personalities, so we don't. None of us are pushovers. We don't like, you know, we'll never just nod yes to things that we str- that we truly don't think. And you might think a lot of people might think that that is going to cause a problem for living together. And I really think it's the opposite because I have done a lot of communal living with ideological alignment. Like, uh, I mean, you might not know this, but um, I have written about this, so many of my listeners might probably do know about this. I'll just briefly say I did live in a kind of communal warehouse for a few years in grad school. And it was a kind of explicitly radical left 
ideology that everyone had. And it was a kind of shared mission of a kind of radical intersectional communist kind of uh, household ethic that we were all trying to, to cultivate. And that actually created way more problems than you would think, because when everyone is supposed to agree on everything, it actually makes it harder to confront meaningful and, and reasonable differences of opinion and, and, and disagreements. Whereas we know that we disagree on certain things. So if Diana says something occasionally, and this will occasionally happen uh, and, and vice versa, also one of us says something and the other person at some point has to kind of say like, I actually really disagree with that. And, and even sometimes we have to say, you know, I actually really don't like, I, I, I not only do I disagree with that, but I, I really don't like when you say that kind of thing because it, it disrespects my basic understanding of, of the world and, and, and what's right and what's wrong. Like that happens every now and then, not that often, but in some ways it's really good that those differences exist because it's like, it's the logic of cross cutting fabrics, right? Um, like communities are actually stronger when there are some things that are aligned and then some things that are crisscrossing, it's just like the lot the physical logic of a fabric. Like you want that, that some alignment, some intersection, it actually makes things stronger. I think so. That would be my lesson. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, for example, you know, we're, we're the polyamorous professors and that's important to our values and identity and lifestyle and whatever. And you guys are monogamous. Right. As far as I know, we've been very good about like not trying to convert you. Not at all. <laughs> like, not at all. Like, and, and you've not like shamed us or whatever and tried to convert us. If we'd lived with another poly couple, even if we'd agreed, okay, we're, there's going to be a firewall and like no right. sex between the couples we would still be judging them so hard if they did poly in a way that we didn't like mm. or them us. And, it would, or, and it would be really hard for us to bite our tongues. So, and that would be kind of the, the, you know, narcissism of minor differences that tears a lot of political movements apart. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there's a little bit of a, um, you know, there's daylight between our positions on this stuff. Right. Gives us, gives us all like um, some elbow room. And like, if we decided, okay, we're going to do a slightly different version of poly, you guys wouldn't be judging us. Cause from your point of view, like it's all <laughs> the same sinful, crazy, <laughs> crazy shit. Right. Or if they were like, or another thing is like, if they were all vegans and mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I'm just going to sneak some butter today. And they, you know, they would, they, they have no judgment about that kind of stuff at all. So absolutely. If you were living with a bunch of Marxists, they'd be like, I don't think you're Marxist enough or whatever. Exactly. That's yeah. right. That's, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. So that'd be my lesson. Great. All right. I think we have to do other things, so we should just call it a day. But uh, thanks for doing this on my channel, and let's do this on both of your channels soon. Um, We'll put links to your YouTubes and all that Mm -hmm. stuff in the uh, description below. And I try to always say big thanks to my patrons. Basically, patrons are why we've been able to invest a lot into really souping up our production quality. So thanks to the patrons and thanks to all of you listening to this right now and hanging out with us. And thank you to Ben. Let's put Ben in the spotlight, actually. What's up, dude? (laughs) <laughs> look at ben working the machines very very cool very competent thank you ben you're the man all right uh anything else you want to squeeze in before we wrap it up we're good all right thanks justin later oh and let us know if the production quality is good if the audio or video needs to be uh changed in any way or if there's any issues uh leave a reply and yeah subscribe also I try to always say that subscribe. kill it subscribe. hey everybody thanks for listening if you thought that was cool then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review i'd appreciate that and yeah just to learn more about what i'm up to you can check out theotherlifenow.com that's all and i will see you around the internet